Good morning, everyone. It feels very strange to have half of you behind me uh, this morning. But uh, hello to everyone. <laughs> yes. Um, and especially, I think we've got two visitors with us this morning. I'm sorry, I don't know your names. Douglas. Douglas and... Douglas and Mary, you are very welcome. Um, we really hope you enjoy your time with us. Um, as you can see, um, everything that you need to follow the service is on the printed order service, but it'll also be on the screen. Uh, and at various points, the children might go out and do something else and, and uh, expend a bit of energy just across the corridor. So don't worry about anything that happens. <laughs> it's all semi-planned. Um, our service this morning will be led by our minister, Katrina, uh, and uh, the only other thing to say about the service is we hope that you will stay and have some tea and coffee with us afterwards. Um, the refreshment station's just left out of the door and to your left again. Um, please, everyone, notice uh, there is no evening service this evening. Um, the specification group, please note that there are two meetings this week, one on uh, tomorrow evening, Monday evening, and one on Wednesday evening. Uh, check your email for precise times and places. Um, a piece of wider family news. Um, I think we all remember Bayar, the postgraduate student from Mongolia who was with us for a year and had to go back to Mongolia uh, last year. Well, he's back in Europe. I had an email last night to say he's been assigned to Paris and he and the children arrived in Paris on Friday I don't know if they speak French, but they, they, got, <laughs> they got stuck into English with Augusto, so I'm perfectly sure they'll be fine. And uh, Bayard's looking for advice on a nice Baptist church in Paris. So it's handy that Christine has a nice Baptist church in Paris that they might be able to attend. So we'll put them in touch with each other. And given that Paris is a hop and a skip away from Glasgow, I've no <laughs> doubt we'll see the whole family again soon. Um, please note that Katrina will be on leave from the 1st of August until the 14th of August inclusive. So from the 1st to the 14th, Katrina is away. Uh, and I think we'll be crossing paths with Stuart and Pirio uh, in Orkney as part of that. Um, and then next Sunday at 11 o'clock, therefore, morning worship here in the hotel will be led by our friend Lionel Gibbs and the following week by our other friend, his wife, Mo Gibbs. Um, so we're kind of keeping it all in the family while Katrina's away. But if you do need uh, to contact uh, a minister at any point during that uh, fortnight, please just uh, get in contact either with me or with one of the other managers, and we'll do our best to help. These are all our notices. Thank you, Anne. So this morning we're continuing our look at spirituality and aspects of spirituality and today we're looking at the word-centred spirituality and partway through there will be an option if you wish to go with Lena and look at uh, some scripture in one way and the rest of us will stay here and look at the same scripture in another way. But I thought, well, as we're thinking about word-centred, let's start by saying some words together. So we've got some words from Psalm 119 which are on the service sheet and also on the screen. Um, I, think you can s I think we've got the same paragraph breaks on, on both places. So if this side start off with the bit that starts, how can a young person, and then this side take over with, with my whole heart, um, and I will try and just keep the thing going. Um, and we're not going to race through it, we're just going to read this scripture together. How can a young person keep their way spotless? 
by keeping your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. In my heart I treasure your promises to avoid sinning against you. Blessed are you, Yahweh. Teach me your will. With my lips I have repeated all the judgments you have given. In the way of your instructions lies my joy, a joy beyond wealth. I will ponder your precepts and fix my gaze on your paths. I find my delight in your will. I do not forget your words. As our opening hymn of praise this morning, here in this place, new light is streaming. And if you're able to stand as we sing, you're invited to do so. to come to God in prayer and as is our practice here I will lead us in a prayer that I've prepared 
And at the end of that, we will join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer. And you are invited to say that in the version and the language which feels for you the most normal and natural. And we will delight, as does God, in the diversity of languages. So let's pray together. In the beginning was the word. And God said, let there be, and life began. God, whose voice brings life, whose speech declares creation to be very good, we come to you now using words to express our praises and our prayers. But words are never enough. No matter how carefully we choose them, they always fail to capture the mystery and majesty of who you are. We name you as father and as mother, who brings us to birth, teaches and trains us how to live the life that you entrust to us. We name you as Lord, as King, as Judge, who brings order out of chaos and shows us the ways of justice and peace. We name you as Shepherd, Advocate and Comforter, who travels with us, protects us, and accompanies us in even the darkest places. We name you quietly in our own hearts, using the words we choose, delighting in who you are, and marveling in your love for us. God, who gives us words, and whose word became a human being called Jesus of Nazareth, we join our voices together in the words of the prayer he gave to his friends, as we say, Our fathers, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. As some of you will be aware, I'm using a book by a chap called Richard Foster as a starting point for our exploration of different kinds of spirituality. And he uses the term, the word-centered life, for spirituality that is centered on preaching and Bible study. He equates that with what he calls an evangelical spirituality, noting that it is the overtly evangelical traditions, such as Methodists and Baptists, who have placed the strongest emphasis on both personal devotional Bible reading and the centrality of the sermon, something that is often expressed in the architecture of such churches where there's a thundering great pulpit in the middle. Our own church has a long and proud history of preaching. In the early days, people would come, especially on a Sunday, 
to listen to Mr. Robarts and others of the early ministers. Don't think anyone's ever come specially to hear me, but hey, never mind. <laughs> but even so, to this day, our website, in its description of our community, begins with these words, thoughtfulness in preaching. Preaching, exploring the Bible, the scriptures, listening for the word of God is vitally important to who we are. Most Baptist churches would claim to express a word-centered spirituality. However, most Baptist thinkers and theologians would note that in most Baptist churches, most Sundays, you will hear very little scripture being read. Lena's nodding, she should know. She gets around to more churches than I do. Others will note that the measure of a sermon is very often its duration. That longer, apparently, is better. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Better than, matters more than the content, apparently. The entertainment, good jokes, good quips, good stories may overshadow exegesis and style trial, triumph over content. Those are hard words, but then I guess we're often our own worst critics. In our service today, I'm taking it as a given that all Baptists take the Bible seriously. I take for granted that we listen to scripture, listening for God's voice in the stories. And I take it as an assumption that some form of sermon or spoken reflection will usually be part of gathered worship. In our service today, we're going to offer two parallel strands. There'll be one path which stays put in here with me and another path which will go with Lena out of here and then potentially out of the building, but we'll be reflecting on the same passage of scripture and it's a decent chunk, as I'm sure Emma is aware because Emma's going to read it for us. In Luke's gospel, we read of a pious man who came to Jesus and asked him what was necessary to attain eternal life. In response to that question, Jesus said to him, what is written in the Torah? How do you read it? This, for me, is the question that inspires all my preaching, irrespective of the passage or the style in which I deliver it. Effectively, what does it say? How do you read it? Careful reading to discover what the passage actually says, which is referred to technically as exegesis, which just really means reading out. Taking time to research what other theologians, preachers and scholars have written and of course, an openness to the still small voice of God. These have to underpin every sermon and every reflection. As Baptists, we believe in continuous revelation, that God always has new things to show us. There is never one final definitive reading of the scriptures, no single correct way to reflect on its implications. Rather, we are expected to take very seriously this bizarre library of ancient writings, a collection of stories that we believe God inspired people to pass on to us, and as we do so, to discover their relevance for our lives today. So we're going to sing one of my favourite hymns from when I was a tot in Sunday school about that. After we've sung the hymn, Emma is going to read for us an extended passage of scripture. 
And then there will be some music for reflection. And during that music, if you would like to go with Lena and explore the passage in the way that she's got prepared, which I think is a really interesting way of doing it, then please just quietly slip out. If you're a small person and needs to go next door and run around and let off some steam, then also feel free to do that at that point. But let's sing together. God has given us a book full of stories. is from John chapter 4 verses 1 to 42. Now when Jesus learnt that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John although it was not Jesus himself but the disciples who baptized he left Judea and started back to Galilee but he had to go through Samaria and so he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes a harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two more days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for what we have heard ourselves, And we know that this is truly the saviour of the world.
So you've got three for one offer on sermons this morning. Exposition. Expository preaching involves systematically working through a passage of scripture, sometimes verse by verse or even word by word, seeking to make plain what it says. Such an approach may make a focus on specific Hebrew or Greek words, or it may focus on a specific word or words in the translated text before seeking to apply what it is uncovered to the lives of the hearers. In this first sermonette, as I'm calling them, we are going to work our way through the passage and note some key points along the way and what they may have to say to us. The story begins with Jesus in Judea, where he's coming to the attention of the religious authorities because he is attracting greater numbers of disciples than his cousin John. Discovering this, he decides to return to Galilee. But for some reason, unexplained, he has to make that journey via Samaria, the homeland of a nation despised by the Jews. Having made that choice, he and those with him, travelling with him, arrive at a town called Sychar or Sukkar. Sending all of them, and we don't know how many there were, into the town, Jesus sits down by what is called Jacob's Well. After a while, a Samaritan woman arrived at the well and discovered a lone man sitting there. A very strange occurrence. To her amazement, he asked her for a drink. She recognised him as a Jew. Maybe it was what he was wearing, his accent, the manner of his speech. And she replied with a question of her own. How can you do this? Your people and my people have nothing to do with each other. His response is mysterious. He doesn't have a bucket or any other means of drawing water. But he who has just asked the woman for a drink claims that he could give her living water. Now we need to know that living water could simply have meant running water. Um, it's a, there's a translation of it that would mean just simply running water, so water from a stream. Puzzled, yet intrigued, intrigued. she realises this is no ordinary man. So she asks him another question. Are you greater than Jacob, who gave us this well? And the intrigue gets deeper as Jesus says he can give the woman a kind of water that will mean she is never, ever thirsty again. And she seems to assume he's speaking literally. So he says, yeah, that's great, fantastic. Give me this water so I never have to come back to the well again to collect water because I will never be thirsty again. And then something totally unexpected happens. Jesus says, go and fetch your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus' reply is something he could not possibly have been aware of. He says to the woman, 
Well, you've been married five times, and actually the man you're living with now is not your husband. So this man is not only greater than Jacob, she now realizes he's a prophet. He has insights that must come from God. And she says as much. And then she opens up a new line of conversation with him. Well, where should we worship then, Mr. Prophet? You say we should worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here. And the conversation goes on and reaches a climax when the woman refers to the long-awaited Messiah, saying, well, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. And Jesus says to her, I am he. By now, the disciples have come back, and the woman, leaving behind her bucket at the well, goes home and tells her neighbours about this encounter. And she says, well, come and see him for yourself. And she asks the question, could this be the Christ, the Messiah? The story concludes with the people of Sukkar coming to believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And they invite him to stay with them for a couple of days. In this encounter, we meet somebody who comes to Jesus for the first time. And to begin with, what she sees is just a man. As he spoke, she recognized that he was a Jewish man. And as the conversation continued, it emerged that he was a knowledgeable, intriguing man with whom she could have a deep conversation and then, unexpectedly, she realized he's not just an interesting man, he's a prophet. Before finally, she dares to ask herself what we might call the million-dollar question, could this be the Messiah? So in this short story, we don't see an instantaneous conversion. Somebody comes to Jesus and wham, they recognize him. But a growing realization of who he is. And the woman, having discovered this, goes on to share the good news with her neighbors and says, you come and see as well. Maybe as we hear the story and reflect on the woman's growing realization of who Jesus is and what that recognition demands of her, we might find new insight for our own discipleship, for the potential of one-to-one -one witnessing enabling others to ask their honest, deep questions and possibly even to experience their own encounters with Jesus, the Christ of God. narrative. 
Narrative preaching is storytelling. It allows the preacher to use their imagination to fill in details that are not recorded in the scriptural account. By telling the story in the voice of one of the characters, real or imaginary, or even perhaps from the viewpoint of an animal or an object, preacher and hearer are invited to suspend disbelief and enter an imagined world, listening for God's voice in new myths, new parables, new stories. Narrative preaching isn't just a retelling of the story for its own sake, though. It is underpinned by the same careful reading, exegesis, study and reflection as any other kind of sermon. And it offers a creative way to engage with ideas that arise and which might be overlooked or lost in an expository sermon. Very often, narrative sermons are left hanging, inviting the hearer to provide their own response with no direction from the preacher. A woman of Samaria, five times married and now living with a man who isn't her husband. A woman who goes out in the heat of the day to draw water from a well and therefore, you deduce, must be something of a scarlet woman, ostracised by her neighbours. A feisty woman, undeterred because the man who speaks to her is Jewish. A woman who becomes, to everyone's amazement, the first missionary to the Samaritans. That's the story you tell yourselves, or something very like it. But what do you actually know about me? Five times married. Do you think that was my choice? My fault that somehow I was to blame? Probably you assume that I was five times divorced. But you don't know. And even if that's true, you couldn't know why, what it was I had done or hadn't done that caused one man after another to send me away. You do know, don't you, that in our culture, a man could divorce me because I burned the dinner. And you do know that divorce was always the man's call, never that of the woman. Possibly I was five times widowed. Maybe I had been forced by convention to marry the brother of a man who died, and then when he died, his brother, and so on and so on. All about maintaining family honour, producing an heir. And maybe I simply ran out of brothers without achieving that. Most likely, you assume I was a free woman. But you don't know. I may have been a servant or a slave, bought and sold, passed on from one family to another. Was I a victim of domestic violence? Had I been forced to marry a man who raped me and then sent away when he tired me of me? Did I even have a choice that the man I was with now was not technically my husband? 
was I groomed, controlled, trafficked? Is mine what you in 2019 would call a hashtag me too story? You don't know, so you have to imagine. Jesus was different from any other man I'd ever met. He looked me in the eye. And in that moment, in that gaze, in the tone of his voice, in what was written down afterwards and in the words that no one remembers, he told me everything I ever did. Imagine that. A man who gazed into my heart, my mind, my soul, and saw everything. Every cruel word that had been spoken to me, or by me. Every girlhood dream, every waking nightmare. Every dull routine, every lonely walk, every curious thought, every wild imagining. He told me everything I ever did in a way that no one had ever told me anything before. And in that moment, joy bubbled up within me, unquenchable, unstoppable, and I knew now that no matter what lay ahead of me, I would never again thirst for acceptance, for love, for hope. Because this man knew me, inside out, and he loved me just the same. So if expository preaching sticks close to the text, seeking to understand, explain, and apply its meaning, and if narrative preaching enters into the story and uses its imagination to explore questions, then thematic preaching is different again, seeking to identify key ideas to which the text points either directly or indirectly, and to relate them to contemporary life and faith. This is a story about crossing boundaries, about challenging preconceptions and prejudices, about unexpected common ground and energizing conversation. 
it's a story in which a previously unquestioned assumption, Jews do not associate with Samaritans, is challenged by an encounter with somebody who is that other over against whom each defines themselves. It's a story that moves from a hypothetical, we are good, they are bad, worldview, to a discovery that actually they are remarkably like us. It's a story that centers on two strangers who, even though they don't actually become friends, experience something life-giving and transformative. Never again will either of them deride the other based on unquestioned stereotypes. Further, each one of them will be more alert to their own unconscious bias, the influence of their culture and context, even of their faith and theology, in leading them to label people as them, or us, as good or bad. As I read the story again this week, I was really struck by that statement, he had to go through Samaria. Is that just a statement of fact, that the most direct route to Galilee from Judea, Judea was via Samaria? It certainly looks to be the shortest on a map. Or was it that Jesus, for some reason, felt compelled to go that way? Did he choose that route? Because actually, to have gone the long way round would have been even more unsafe, given what people were starting to say about him. I don't have an answer to that question. All I do know is it's not the route he would naturally or normally have chosen. So whatever his reason, Jesus took a risk and journeyed into what he believed to be hostile territory. Having taken that route then, the most logical thing to do would have been to keep their heads down and keep going until they emerged the other side in Galilee. But that isn't what happened. Right close to the border, when it would actually have been really easy just to keep going a few more miles, they stopped. Jesus sent his, his friends to go and buy food, and he rested at Jacob's well. He could have just sat there quietly, he could have observed the woman coming to the well and stepped aside while she filled the water jar and stayed completely apart from her. But he didn't. In that simple request for a drink of water, he crossed a boundary. Well, actually, he crossed several boundaries. He engaged with a woman. He engaged with a Samaritan. He engaged with somebody whose life story was full of sadness and probable rejection. And out of that simple request blossomed a conversation that rapidly developed into a deep theological discussion of people I think were actually intellectual equals. And that was transformative. Jesus revealed himself to the Samaritan woman long before any of his own followers recognized his identity. She seems to be the first evangelist, the first missionary. It is a step too far to say that they became friends. And we don't know whether they ever saw each other again after the few days he spent in her village. But it's also fair to say that they would never see other people groups 
in the way they had before. Jesus saw Samaritans differently. The Samaritans saw the Jews differently. And I wonder who for us might take the place of the people of Samaria as a people group with whom we would not associate, about whom we might feel strongly and negatively, who we fear or avoid. And I wonder why that might be. And even if we don't consciously or actively hate another people group, I wonder about our own unconscious biases. 20 years ago, I had to move to Manchester. I had to. It was a condition of the offer I was given to train for Baptist ministry. I was offered a flat on the border of Hume and Moss Side. Hume is largely white working class, and it was still recovering from the effects of economic neglect over decades. Moss Side was predominantly black African Caribbean, with a reputation for drugs, gangs, and violence. And my placement was at an Anglican church in Moss Side. It was a challenging place to live. I was curb crawled and propositioned on more than one occasion. I would be aware of drug deals going on outside my house, and certainly some friends were genuinely concerned for my safety. But what I remember most vividly is how strange it felt to be white in a predominantly black area. I didn't consider myself to be racist, but I soon realized how much I just assumed white as normative. And I remember being surprised when there was a knock on the door and I opened it and there was a delightful Rastafarian postie with a parcel for me, complete with his multicolored hat and his dreads. I also remember the time when I was driving around the Alex Park estate to pick up somebody from church. It was dark and because of previous gang stuff, the place had been turned into a maze. You couldn't get out other than at two places. And I was driving really slowly looking for the house numbers and became aware of a police car following me because anybody driving slowly through that estate must be up to no good. And so I began to see what life looked like as part of this ethnic minority. And then there were the times that we ate curry goat or peas and rice at a church lunch, when we discussed what the Bible had to say about this or that, when Ira, one of the most amazing Jamaican women, would pray, Aha, praise the Lord, we thank you that you have spared us to see another day. And there were the times we would stand around the grave of a young man who died a violent death, singing spirituals whilst the men filled in the grave. And we learned to value each other, to cherish what we shared and to respect the differences. If not long-term friends at a one-to-one -one level, at least we were strangers no longer. I would never have chosen to live in that part of Manchester, but I'm so glad I did. Jesus may never have chosen to travel through Samaria, but I like to think that he was glad that he did. I wonder where we might find ourselves and how God might enable us to discover friendship and acceptance in unexpected places. 
And I wonder what it is that God has to say to us as we continue to engage with and reflect on the scriptures. And with that in mind, let's sing again. Lord, you sometimes speak in wonders, unmistakable and clear. Thanks, Paul. So let's come to God with our prayers for others and for each other. Let us pray. Boundary crossing God, as we meet together today and remind ourselves of the times when Jesus challenged the status quo, we pray for a world where division seems to be increasing and where powerful leaders in wealthy nations seek to keep out anyone who doesn't fit with their idea of us. We know that the issues are complex, that there are no easy solutions or quick solutions, yet we are reminded by Jesus' example of engaging with a woman he deemed to be them 
and how it transformed both their lives. Show us how, even in very small ways, we can cross boundaries and break down barriers. Sovereign Lord, sometimes we name your authority almost glibly, and other times we shy away from such power language because our human experience sees how power has the potential to corrupt. In a week when political leadership has changed in this union of nations, and with the continuing complexity of national and international affairs, we remind ourselves of the Apostle Paul's injunction that we should pray for all rulers and all people in authority. We do so tentatively, asking that wisdom and integrity, compassion and fairness will guide them in all they endeavour. Communal God, as part of organisations and movements that proclaim the name of Jesus, we pray for our friends, neighbours and siblings in Christ each with their own challenges and opportunities. This week, we delight to note that friends within the Baptist Union of Scotland will be praying for us. And we join our voices with theirs in praying for the churches in Hillview and Kintore. We also pray for Ivy Young, the ministry administrator, whose diligence and grace are so vital to the work of the union. BMS World Mission invite us to focus on work in Nepal and other parts of Asia. Recalling our own historic and continuing links with work there, it is our joy to pray for those who enter a new culture, become friends with, serve and learn from those of other people groups, and who model your inclusive love for all people. Lastly, we pray for ourselves. Just like the woman of Samaria, everything we have ever said or done, thought or felt is known to you. There is nothing we can hide or need to hide because knowing us, you also love us. And loving us, you redeem us from all that denies our true humanity. And redeeming us, you empower and enable us to live transformed lives, even when it's not what we choose, even when it's tough. Eternal and ever-loving God, accept our prayers and help us to live out the answers we seek, offering you not only our words, but our very selves. Amen.
loving God who meets us in unexpected places and unexpected ways. We offer these gifts of money and with them we offer our very souls that you would lead us to expect the unexpected and to serve you wherever you lead us. Amen. Our closing hymn is one of my most favouritest hymns ever. I learned it when I was a child. And I think what I love about it is it reminds us that God has always got more to show us from the scriptures. We've never got it sussed. As long as we live, there will always be new things to learn. It's a very old hymn, a very uh, powerful hymn, and I hope you'll enjoy singing it. We limit not the truth of God to our poor reach of mind. Bless us with the gifts of open hearts and open minds. 
able to discover more and more of the truths we profess. And may we know the unbounded grace of Christ and the courageous companionship of the Holy Spirit as we journey onwards today and every day. Mm -hmm.